We're going to begin today in Daniel 1. We started a series on Daniel and 1 Peter, sort of a mashup between the two, though we'll be mostly rooted in Daniel, called I Got Nothing. I got nothing. Trying to make sense of in what it can be very confusing times, not just for the follower of Jesus, but I think for all of us. The goalposts on how we're to, to, to talk and serve people well feel like they're moving. The goalposts on what it means to be you know, a human being in some ways, an embodied person. Right, there's all the hot button things around uh, you know, postmodern gender theory, and there's like big discussions around what true generosity looks like and true justice looks like. And, Mostly as a follower of Jesus, how do we make sense uh, of following the way of Jesus at any given time, whether it feels like the cultural values align with the way of Jesus or don't? And what we get, I think, in a moment like this, where many of us feel disoriented because maybe the faith you grew up in or the part of the country that you came from, it feels like when I got to Providence, like the, the sands are just are shifting. How do I think well and live well in this moment? And our hope is that we would learn something from Daniel. So I'm going to read a large chunk of scripture. You here for this? I encourage you to open your Bibles to Daniel 1 or it will be on the screen. In the third year of the reign of the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenza, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Balthazar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please tell your servants for 10 days, give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And all of the vegans said... So, 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 some of you said amen you are not vegan so the guard took away their choice food and wine and they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead to these four men 
young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. This is the word of the Lord. We're just going to do some old school Bible study. I'm going to walk through this passage really slowly, and we're going to ask some questions. And maybe already in reading this, you might have a sense of where we might go on this topic of like clarity and confusion. We're going to land it in another C word here, which is compromise. I want to talk about compromise. I want to talk about the compromising of our identity and what we don't see happen with Daniel. Uh, some good friends of mine uh, who uh, some of you, many of you know go to this church. We, uh, we have the, they have the, the joy of inheriting a, a small family beach house on Cape Cod. And uh, my wife and I and kids, every summer, it seems like for the last six, seven, eight years or so, it's been a while, we've been able to go out there for a weekend or for a couple of days and just spend life with them in this, this old, like, turn-of-the-century Cape house. It's so fun. The best part is actually getting to go on this boat. This is great Boston whaler, and uh, it gets driven around with, like, such passion and joy. And um, I'm just going to say who this family is just for most of it. I don't know why I'm being all coded about it. This is the Greg and Sarah Johnson. I didn't want to, like, blow up their spot only in that. Um, never mind. There's a lot I can say. Love you guys. Um, so we get to go, and we do this little trip with them. And uh, they have, some of you know, they have two, two young boys. And... Um, I have three young girls, and uh, on this one day that we were out in the boat, this is relevant, many of the children were in the boat, and uh, I was just feeling alive in a way that you only can in the middle of summer. Uh, I believe it was the summer I was on my sabbatical, and I, I just had extra in the tank, extra joy in the tank, extra everything that was like relaxation and peace. Um, and so this makes for a very like healthy Andrew and a very dangerous Andrew. And so it's like, you know, there is no limit. Like, there's no limit on wonder and joy. When you think you've hit the ceiling, I will punch through the hole and f- go further. And so as the boat is coming uh, into this, like, uh, cove area where they live, I was just like, I want to just dive off the front of the boat while the boat's going. And um, I, knew, I knew it was deep enough to do that. And I'm just, again, feeling a bit of recklessness. I'm like, let's do this. So I just kind of straight up, without looking in, go to the front of the boat, put my feet up on the side, and dive right off and didn't hit bottom. No, no, no. I just jumped headlong into a jellyfish. Like, I just, apparently, I didn't see it. I just gave it a big hug. And apparently it was a, it was a big one, as Silas has, or Noah has pointed out. Um, you, you weren't there? Oh, that's right. Silas was in the boat. So I jump into this. And in that moment, I uh, come up out of the water. And uh, I'm just a, like as a pastor, I'm, I'm just a human man. So uh, forgive me. This is definitely just, this will be a quick, like, I'm wondering if this is the right church for me. You're about to find out. I just let out a mighty, like, from the bowels of my being. Some of you are like, what's the big deal? Some of you are like, Pastor. My wife is not excited I shared this story. Guaranteed. <laughs> I, the rest of the day, as baking 
was it baking sodas being poured and vinegar and all that. There was all these home remedies and people making runs to the, to the, to CVS to come back. I was in so much crippling pain, but the thing that was worse than the physical pain was this reality that I had just dropped this like glorious F-bomb in front of many a children. It was the closest thing that I could think of as I was like in a goofy way, thinking about what it is to one, just be sort of influenced like by things around me. Like where, I mean, I've been growing up in Rhode Island. It's not like Rhode Island is a F-bomb free zone, right? And in the right context, let's just be honest, a well-placed one you could argue is like, could be holy and sanctified. <laughs> different, different sermon. The reality was like, where does, what, like, how, why is that the, the, the move when I'm like just struck? And then the second was this feeling of like, I had just completely like defiled myself. Like that was the sense of like, this is not like me at my best. And it had just been broadcast in front of a few children going, did I just hear what I thought I heard? To which I tried to duck and cover and sort of deny, which clearly made it worse before the Lord as well. The question before Daniel, as he, we read in the first verse, in the third year of the reign, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it, it says in the ESV. The question for him, as he is walking the road from Judah into Babylon, we read that God handed them over. We know that the Jewish people were warned that if you're not faithful, if you're not faithful literally to care for the poor and the hurting, faithful to keep my way out in front, to not fall to idols, to not to desire things that are not of the way of life, God warns them, I'm gonna like give you over. Many have just pointed out that that's the sort of language of like, this is the natural consequence of what happens when you begin to step out of alignment with me. And so Daniel, who clearly we're going to read as we go through this book, has been faithful, faithful to the mission, faithful to the call to be a blessing to the world, to be this light on the hill, blessed to be a blessing we read in Genesis 12. This was the call and the mission of the people of Israel. Judah is one of the regions there at this time. They are being overtaken and shipped up to Babylon. And I got to wonder on this dusty march that Daniel made, feeling the defeat and discouragement that all of his friends must have felt. And then they enter Babylon and saw the vessels of Yahweh's temple being placed in Marduk's temple. So this his chief eunuch to bring some people, some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and nobility. And he brings youths without blemish of good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding. He's being, because he is actually one of the best of the best, the king is inviting him in to this privileged position to learn a whole new way of being. For brand new to the scriptures, this is hard power. This is colonization. They have won and, and it, on the surface of things, really seems pretty simple. They've like beaten them back. 
And they have taken the best of the best that many have pointed out is likely so that they would help lead these new people that they have conquered and that there would not be revolt. In verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. One commentator points out that uh, the gods were fed in a, this is the Babylonian gods in this ceremonial fashion, accompanied by music from offerings and the produce of the temple land and flocks. When the god was eating, he was, at least in later times, hidden from human view, even the priests. These gods, these Babylonian gods, they would take part in, quote, eating the food. This was the ceremony behind this linen with the priests. And then one commentator says, what was not destined for the table of the main deity, his consort, his children, or the servants of God, was then distributed among the temple administrators and craftsmen. The quantities of food involved could be enormous. You've got the god Marduk, who was the national god of Babylon. Marduk was depicted as a hybrid sort of dragon creature which ornamented the walls of ancient Babylon. There's a whole creation myth, actually, that Genesis 1 does, um, it kind of combats and goes at in a few ways, actually. There is the god Nabu, uh, regarded as the son of Marduk. Um, and then Ishtar was this important female deity of fertility. She's often represented riding on this sacred beast. And then they go in, all of this is happening, these ceremonies around food and drink and learning all happen in the temple of Marduk. Nebuchadnezzar, this, as the king, is essentially the head of the religion of Marduk. So the king invites these youths in, into this privileged position. They were educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Of the tri these are of the tribe of Judah. And then they were given these new names. Now, a few things about names. Names are all about, obviously, like identification. This is how we think about naming for the most part. But in the ancient world, your name was so much more. Your name was, was more than a label. It was your destiny. It was the truest thing about you. A personal name was supposed to share something essential about who that person is. The names were meant to reveal the nature of the person. Daniel has this name that means God is my judge. I think we have this up on the screen. It was changed to Belteshazzar, which was the treasure of Bel, which is one of the gods. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious, was changed to Shadrach, was the command of Aku, who is the moon god. Mishael, who is like God? He got the ruffle. Meshach was who is what Aku, the moon god, which is a way of saying who is like Aku. And then Azariah, the Lord, helps. And Abednego, the servant of Nago. Now, it's worth pointing out in each of these cases when the Hebrew name like, contains, obviously, this reference to the one true God, the God of Israel. Their Babylonian name involves an allusion to the pagan deity. Names matter in, in ways then that they don't quite matter now. But it's also important to point out that the renaming wasn't an attempt to degrade Daniel. I've heard people preach sermons about this. And it's, it's not that it's like all wrong. It's just mostly wrong. <laughs> I don't ever do this. I, I need to point this out, though. You need to have some theological humility when we come to the text. We, we don't ever get the sense ever 
in this passage or in anywhere else in history, specifically to even how the Jewish people understand themselves now in a lot of other cultures. This wasn't this massive act of degradation and by changing your name, they were trying to like take them over in some really hostile way. It was simply part of the normal assimilation. You get no sense that there's any pushback about this at all. It is just old fashioned. We're gonna actually, we, we want you to fit in. We want you to thrive and we're gonna give you new names. And as we're going to read, or as we just read, we see that Daniel actually doesn't push back against the name. What he does have is almost a sort of despondency and a kind of indifference. In fact, Daniel never calls himself by his Babylonian name throughout the book. It's widely understood that there's a little bit of pushback on whether Daniel wrote this book or not. But Daniel uh, never calls himself by his Babylonian name. And then number two, this is so nerdy, but so interesting. The writer often misspells the Babylonian names. Like the first people who are beginning to translate this and make sense of the book of Daniel, they thought the scribes had screwed up. Like they thought that there's, oh, there must be like a, 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 an issue with how this language was passed down. And we're not exactly sure. Again, there may be names like this that come up in different spellings of the name. But it almost reads, and one commentator, Montgomery, points out, it's almost like Daniel is like intentionally misspelling the name, which is kind of punk rock, is it not? Like, it's kind of awesome. It's like Daniel's saying, like, yeah, 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 like, I don't know, whatever these like, like something, something names are. That gives them no, no honor at all, if that is the case. And now in this opening bit, that's giving us all of this context for the rest of the book, I do want to point out, and I already mentioned this phrase, the difference between hard power and soft power. Now, if we think about hard power as it relates to the subject at hand, which is colonization and assimilation, for some of you who are about to glaze over like history class, stay with me, this is important. As followers of Jesus, there would be a time, if you've ever been on a missionary trip, to some you know, um, different areas of the world where there has been European colonization. There has been Anglo, like, and, and driven by the church. There's the healthy version of this. And by healthy, I mean like not, that's a tricky word, healthy colonization. What I mean is the proliferation of the gospel and the good news that doesn't actually hijack the culture. So if you've ever done a missionary trip or you've ever been overseas, like I'm gonna, a place like Ghana, and all of a sudden you walk into a church service and everyone's in like suit and tie and singing hymns that were written by like white Western, white European like men, uh, like John Wesley, and they're singing vows and, and stuff. Like th this is kind of understandable only insofar as like this was the language that was handed to them about the gospel, but this wouldn't be like honoring the culture. You following me? like the healthiest like proliferations of the good news and sharing of the gospel would have been places where the, the, the culture and the beauty and richness of that particular area like take on the beauty of the gospel, right? It's always important to point out that Christianity is not a white man's religion. It did not like begin in Europe. Like none of these things are remotely accurate or true, but we have seen when a particular nation, and this isn't just Europe, but has taken over a particular area and done so somehow in the name of Christ when a whole culture gets swept up. This would be hard power when things are demanded and things are pushed down your throat. What we experience 
here and now in our culture is something that um, Joseph Nye would call soft power. He's a professor at Harvard University. Uh, in his 1990 book, Bound to Lead, uh, he talks about this in studying war and influence in the Middle East. He was the former Assistant Secretary of Defense and International Security Affairs. In essence, he talks about power is nothing more right, than the ability to affect others and to get what you want. And some of the tools of coercion and payment or hard power are ones that are done like power over. So hard power in our culture would be like the, you need to obey the law. If you don't obey the law, the police are going to arrest you as an example of hard power. Soft power has something more to do with like mm, orange is the new black or like, like a fourth Moscow mule or like a very different vision of freedom that like no one's had for centuries. Let me explain more. Soft power is about... Um, uh, a charisma, emotional appeal, a vision and communication. It's like embodied culture and values, things that are done in very legitimate ways that actually have impact. In Daniel, we see a hard power that then moves into a soft power. They've conquered these people. You have to come now and live here. He takes these young, handsome boys and he plants them down and he says, we're going to give you a new name. We're going to eat differently. We roll differently here in Babylon. We want you to have all those privileges, fall in line with the king. And we are going to give you such privilege and opportunity that will allow you, it seems, to then lead the rest of the people that we just conquered because you're the best and the brightest and you can see what they're doing here. But then the influence begins to shift just by being in the temple, just by drinking the wine, just by being called that name. There is, in theory, it begins to move to a bit of Soft power. But there's very few people, right, I think in our world and in our culture right now who are sort of, although this is beginning to happen, who are like any sort of hard power around if you don't do this, then you are not. But soft power, I think, in our world begins to look like this appeal of things that are outside the way of God, the cultural pressures of our moment that begin to appeal to our appetite and to our ambitions and to our cravings and that they begin to prey on our identity. There, there is ways of being in our world and in our city and in our culture that are preying on our identity. They are an alternative story. Nebuchadnezzar is holding out a new vision of the good life. But Daniel, as we're going to read throughout this book, he has a whole like different alternative story. Daniel has built his life around practices like reading through the scriptures and fixed hour prayer and fasting. One of the most important things that he does is continue to follow these practices and disciplines that remind him ultimately of who he is. And all of that that we'll read about as we go through this book kind of rewinds like into this one moment in Daniel 1.8 where we essentially get a vision for the whole book of Daniel. We read, Daniel resolved. Daniel resolved. If you're taking notes, just write that phrase down, Daniel resolved. He resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine. One translation says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. The word defile 
This ancient Hebrew word that carries the thought of like polluting or staining. It's used in Isaiah 59, Zephaniah 3, Malachi 1. All of those passages have this sense of like, this is not how you are supposed to be. Some relate to idol worship. Some relate to how you're caring for others. It was like this deep discord. You've allowed something into your mind and spirit that has begun to like move into your practices and disciplines that is not good or true or beautiful according to the way of Jesus or the way of God. Daniel resolved this purposed heart. It's this word that's like full of conviction. This is the language of like Maya Angelou when she says, I agreed a long time ago, I would not live at any cost. If I am moved or forced away from what I think is the right thing, I will not do it. Right? She's like, I, I, I'm resolved. I'm not going to, living, just living at any cost? No, no, there's actually a cost. This is the language of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, uh, 1 Peter 2, 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Daniel resolved to remember that you do not have to worry about the consequences of doing the right thing. And maybe most importantly for many of us, Daniel's resolve came from clarity. This is why we took the first two weeks, for those of you who've been here, to teach on what we taught on. Before we touched Daniel, it was, do we have clarity on the scriptures? Do we have clarity on what it is to pursue God and seek after him? Because this is the whole backstory to the book of Daniel that we don't read here. His faithfulness, his clarity on what it means to be most alive. And then when he butts up against cultural forces, hard power or soft power. When he, I imagine him like being here, here in Providence. And when he comes against, maybe not the hard power of our day, but the soft power of coercion. The soft power that says, like, I'm going to, that's okay, I can compromise that. That's just a small thing there. He knew where to draw the line and go, no, no. Daniel's resolve, his resolve, man, it produced courage. It produced courage. A few reasons this was a courageous act. To refuse the royal diet. Like could have been taken as an insult to the king and as an act of direct disobedience, obviously. Two, pressure from Daniel's peers certainly made this a difficult like, decision. We know there were a lot of people who came with him. We only hear names of four. The assumption by most scholars is that like everybody else was doing it. <laughs> by choosing this course of action, Daniel and his friends were setting themselves apart from others. Three, this like a very unorthodox behavior had jeopardized their chances or could jeopardize their chances for advancement. Am I willing to follow the way of Jesus if it jacks up my career, my business, the next step in the ladder? The quality of food would have been just attractive. This is just a feast. Any of you who like food is your vice, like you know. Their new location may have tempted them to be unfaithful. Judah was 900 miles away. Parents and friends would never know whether or not they had kept God's law. Remember, the rest of the people are in Judah being occupied. Other people wouldn't have known their actions, which I think is kind of what happens a bit here in the city with some of us. I know this is not everyone's story. But I think providence, like, will wear you down if you let it. 
I know some of you, the story is like, and it's a lot of us, like I'm a 20-something, I moved into the city, didn't grow up here, and it came from like, um, like a, a moderate like church community or maybe a more conservative church community. You come to the city, you start to feel like a little cool, I move to the west side, but I say I live in Oneyville, but I've only been there a couple of weeks, and you know where the one speakeasy is, and so you start referencing it. And so you start to drink a little bit more, <laughs> and you start to drink a little bit more, and then you start to adopt like this like cynicism towards culture and the cynicism towards Christian values. And you didn't really grow up in a broken Christian home, but you read that a lot of other people did, and that becomes in vogue, and so you start to attach yourself to that. And because everything in the news is kind of highlighting like a particular way of like understanding that was different from the way you were raised, you just assume all of it and you like it was bad and you chuck it. You start to chill out a little bit more on your morals, like consumerism begins to leak in and it has much more to do with like fashion than anything else, sexuality, like your views on sexuality begin to shift and it's like, no, 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 I'm just like, it was late at night, it was one in the morning, we were just praying together on the bed, you know, whatever. East. You start to drift from church because, man, mimosas are good and, like, Bayberry brunch is just is pretty holy second to church. You start consuming things maybe you never would have before. Like, there's no Bible verse about watching, like, Game, Game of Thrones. And it's not really porn because it's, you know, it's Game of Thrones. <laughs> Come on. You guys know me, right? You guys know me. I'm the, like, weird purity path, to, like, like, trying to push some weird purity culture thing. But even that, the fact that I have to preface that, it's like there's a lot of brokenness that came out of purity culture, very aware of it, and some stuff that is not faithful to the scriptures. But when you're faithful to the scriptures, God's going to call you to be holy. He's going to call you to be holy, man. He's just going to call you to be holy. And that's no shame or guilt or condemnation on anyone, but, like, what it is to be alive in the way of Jesus. Like, we start to, like, suddenly, like, compromise even that understanding. Well, I know the scriptures kind of say that on that issue, but I just, frankly, like, have found some other, like, loopholes on, like, built upon scholars that are, like, so widely discredited, but, you know, they have really good TikTok events, TikTok accounts. Am I preaching to anybody? It's okay if I'm not. I mean, it's just me. Some of you came from Christian culture, and you baptized consumerism in that culture. Some of you came from the other place. You baptized military might. You baptize like a particular lifestyle that looks nothing like the way of Jesus at all. And you come here and you're listening to all this and you're just like, you come into a city like Providence and you actually push back harder on it. And you can't stick around for very long because you feel the challenge and it's be easier to shrink back into some other kind of more comfortable Americanized version of Christianity. Here's another example of what I'm getting at, though if I don't have you yet. You show this next, next slide. Spending hours, I've showed this before. Spending hours uh, monitoring your fantasy sports team. That would be viewed as pretty normal. Binge watching entire seasons of TV shows on the weekend, right? Binging is bad in almost every department except for when we get to media and then somehow like it's like praised. That's totally normal. Saving and spending thousands of dollars like on like for like holidays and for getting away and going on elaborate trips. That's super smart. You should totally do that. What, you've never traveled before? Working out an hour a day. This is great. Super normal. Now, what begins to happen, I think, in our culture, we get this like, kind of ricochet where like, getting up early to seek God, ah, it's like, yeah, it's cool. I'm just not a morning person. Disciplining your lifestyle. Well, that sounds a bit like legalism, and we're trying to push back against that, and that's why I moved to the Northeast to get away from that legalism. Having a culture where you use your margin to seek God, well, that's just straight up fundamentalism. You guys are a little intense, and that's a bit much. Right, many of us in Providence experience, you guys okay? Okay. I have like 16 more rants I can go on if I haven't like alienated all of you. 
Many of us in Providence experience the hardest of soft powers, even in political injustice conversations. The great article I encourage you to read has, uh, has the modern day vision of social justice become a religion. Uh, one writer in, in this, this is an Atlantic article that just came out. I was thinking about the Marx quote that religion is the opium of the people, Elizabeth Oldfield told me. I think that we've got, what we've got now is that politics is the amphetamines of the people. And again, to be very, very clear, for those of you who knew where we're coming from, the Bible calls us to a justice that is social, and there is a biblical vision of what it is to care for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. Let me be very clear. What I'm just simply pointing out is there's these cultural things that begin to even pull the good things that literally were born out of the Christian worldview that get twisted. This isn't a culture war sermon. What this is, is a reminder that there is a good and a true and a beautiful, and we're meant to center our whole being on Jesus and on that way. No one says, I'm going to move to Providence and stop following Jesus. I mean, there's probably a couple of people who say that, but like, that's a different sermon. You know, it's just one little compromise at a time. One little compromise at a time. Small, incremental decisions. This is what sin does. It numbs us. Little sins are the worst. Little cumulative things that go, I don't have to worry about that. Or, you know, I've, I've, I've definitely like signaled enough on social media. I don't actually have to help with the poor and the hurting. No, 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 you don't understand. I posted Black Lives Matter, so I don't have to deal with the race stuff really in my real life and actually helping people. I felt like I was being too hard on the left, so I wanted to be hard on the right. Is that cool? How many of you are still with me? I'll stop checking in. Sins numb us. Little sins, they have this accumulative effect that end up affecting our identity. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. I just love to point out that that little, like, first you're walking with something and then you're just standing with it and then you're sitting with it. This is the nature of sin. It just begins to creep in. And suddenly things, when you are most alive and had fallen in love with Jesus and knew the sacrificial, powerful, revelatory love of God, suddenly as you've begun to sit with a little bit of compromise and a little bit of compromise and a little bit of compromise, or worse, there's some really healthy critique that you do need to deconstruct and get rid of, but you threw the baby out with the bathwater. Hence the purity culture theme thing, right? All this disgusting brokenness that came out of Christian culture, all the while God's like, yeah, 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 I still want you to value sexuality. I still think it's really sacred, so guard your body closely. That didn't get thrown out. But what happens is we let these things in and they begin to take over. And so we're walking a little bit with this sin. It's just kind of casually out there. And then we start to stand and we're like kind of paying attention to it. And then suddenly we're sitting with it. So how do we resist this? How do we resist this compromising, the compromising of our identity. First, we need to understand how identity works. If you put up the circles. An individual's personality is made up of like a social identity. It is the sum parts that define who we are based on our affiliation with social groups that define our identity. And so a basic social identity map is constructed by using a combination of three things. One is our core, like elemental characteristics. These are behaviors and attitudes that make us unique as an individual. Two, the next ring is the chosen ring. These are characteristics that we can't choose to, like, we can't, um, sorry, characteristics that we can choose to describe our status. This would be our occupation, our political affiliation, our hobbies, our place of residence. And then three, there's our given, given things. These are attributes or conditions that we have no control over. Age, place of birth, physical characteristics, our biology, 
who we're wired to be, what makes up our identity. The gospel actually speaks to all three spheres. There's the core, right? My beliefs. Well, as a follower of Jesus, I, I believe that I'm loved. I believe that death has lost its sting. I'm going to live with God forever, right? This was like the heartbeat of the civil rights movement. Like, I have no fear of death. I've been to the promised land. I've been to the mountaintop. I know where this thing is going. I know who's going to win in the end. So I'm going to charge in with a holy recklessness and abandon because I don't fear death. Core. And we have these chosen things like, well, yeah, I'm from Providence. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a designer. I'm a creative. I'm in finance. I'm a student. But first and foremost, I have said yes. I have said yes to the grace of God. I've chosen to trust that reality is what I mean by chosen for all the reformers in the room. Given. Given. These are things you have no control over. I'm a 25-year-old man. I'm a 40-year-old woman. I was born here. I was born there. Even here, the gospel does this reframe is that you were born again. You have blessings spoken over you at the beginning of your spiritual journey. Think of Jesus receiving the words from God the Father. This is my son who I'm well pleased. I'm a child of God. I was born in the United States. I cannot change that. But my allegiance goes way beyond this nation. My given name is child of God or given identity. I am who God says I am. Thomas Merton says, if you want to identify me, ask me not where I live or what I like to eat or how I comb my hair, but ask me what I'm living for in detail. And ask me what I think is keeping me from living fully the thing I want to live for. Between these two answers, you can determine the identity of any person. The better the answer they have, the more of a, of a person they are. Whatever you believe is the truest thing about you will be your functioning identity. And for the Christian, the truest thing about us is that we are in Christ. Daniel has this clarity about who he is. I'm not going to spell these guys' names right. I'm going to refer to myself as Daniel. I'm going to draw the line like it was clear. Oh, you going to give me a new name? Great, I know who I am. You're going to teach me and educate me? Great, all truth is God's truth. Maybe there's something brilliant to learn from Babylonia, but I know the word and I know what's true and I have clarity on that. Oh, you want me to step in and eat at the table? You want me to participate with the God's dinner? You want me to like eat food that was maybe sacrificed to idols? There's probably like six different reasons he would have said no and they all revolve around participation in the life with Marduk or participation with the life of Babylon. That's where Daniel draws the line. I'm not participating in that. First Peter says, you can be in the world. I'm not of it. I'm here. Love Providence. Love brunch. Love working out. Love saving money. Love a great, like, well-scripted show. Still have a hard time with Game of Thrones, fellas, but it's a different sermon. Right? Like, I, I, all, everything is mine in God and the freedom I have in Christ, but that is not, that will not affect and shape my identity. I will be aware of what I am letting into my body. I'm being aware of what I'm letting into my soul. I will be aware of places where I'm called, where I'm being invited to somehow compromise or not walk faithfully in the way of Jesus. And so I land in a little bit of like a, a mirror moment. Imagine for a moment, like just hold a mirror up in front of yourself. Imagine there's like a big mirror on the screen here. And for those of you who are here and who are followers of Jesus, hear, hear this. You, 
You've been raised with Christ. You, the person you're looking at in the mirror. You used to walk these ways in the life you once lived. This is Colossians 3. They're insisting, they're telling this early church that there's something so epic that's happened that these are the lives we once lived. It's not that we're perfect and that we don't struggle. It's that there's a new way of life that involves a constant like, decision to keep dying to the old. I am being remade. I am in Christ. You've been adopted. In Christ, you are loved by God with an inseparable love, it says in Romans 8. Galatians 3, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. In Christ Jesus, everything you really need will be supplied. Philippians 4.19, in Christ Jesus, the peace of God, the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. In Christ Jesus, you have eternal life. When God looks at me, God sees Christ because I'm in him. God's view of me is Christ and Christ is perfect. We read, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Did you catch that word in the middle there? Holy. Holy means pure, without blemish and unstained. In these passages, we're being told who we are now. Let us live up to what we've already attained. This is who you are. You've adopted. So any places you're like, yeah, that's cute. I said yes to Jesus, but that's not me. You're, you're being invited into fully who you actually are and trusting your identity. That will be where the change comes from. The issue isn't you beating yourself up over the things that you're not doing or the things you're doing poorly. The issue is you learning who God made you to be and who God keeps insisting in the scriptures that you already are. You already are. This is letting what God says shape what we believe about ourselves. This is why shame has no place in the Christian journey. No condemnation, it says in Romans 8. None. No shame. It's simply like against everything Jesus is for. There's no list of what is being held against us. No record of wrongs, it says. Just quoting scripture here. You still looking in that mirror? It has simply been done away with. It's no longer an issue. To bring it up is pointless. Beating yourself up is pointless. Beating others up about who and what they are not is going in the wrong direction. It's working against the purposes of God. God is obviously calling us to grow and to be more alive and to be more just and more merciful and more full of love and more full of grace and less indulging the passions that would drive us away. But he's saying, Let, live up to what you've already attained. I am not who I was. You are not who you were. The old person going away, the new person is here, reborn and rebirthed and remade and reconciled and renewed. Jesus said, you are in me and I am in you. And so the first Christians went around telling people to repent. Return. That's what that word means. Return to God. Return to who you were created to be. Shift your mind away from these lies. They insisted that people could count themselves dead to sin and alive in God. And this has so many implications for when we stumble, when we fail, and when we fall short, and when we find ourselves in places where we're compromising, like many of Daniel's peers likely did. We admit it. We confess it. We thank God we're forgiven. We make amends with anyone who has been affected by our actions, and then we move on. Not because sin isn't serious, but because I'm taking seriously who God says that I am. It's not that sin shouldn't be taken seriously. It's just that we want to take even more seriously who God says we are. God's power, not mine. 
So what does this mean for the Christian life? To begin, Christians are people learning who they are in Christ. We are being taught about our new identity. And when you begin to tell somebody all the good and true and beautiful about who God is and who God's made them to be, you get to spend less time talking about the big, bad, evil culture out there that's trying to corrupt us. Because you have such razor-sharp clarity on what is most holy and pure. And so stuff just begins to bounce off you. You have such clarity and wisdom of knowing where to draw a line and where not to. Daniel, again, give me a new name. Cool, we'll learn some things. I'm not participating in that, though, because that would defile me. That would jack me up. That would not be obedience to God because we know obedience to God is always rooted in love. Always. His rules, his precepts, they're, they, they're, throughout Scripture, we are told that these are the things that give life. A list of rules or some guiding ethical principles or some ways to understand the world that are good, that if we don't do them, bring wrath. Those things are so loving. And you know this if you have either been a parent or been a child of a good parent, which is most of you, hopefully. You know that the driver for the best calls to obedience and the best guardrails and the best rules are love. That's why we say in our house all the time, hey, hey, Harper, that's not who we are. Hey, Roe, that's not who we are. That's not how we roll. No, 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 we tell the truth in our family. That's not who God made you to be. Man, I have so much more I wanna share, but we need to end. <laughs> I will say this. How will the information about who you are and about who God is, how will you let it impact you? How will you allow like the naming, the naming that God has done in so many of your lives change you and open you up and allow you to see the places of compromise that you've stepped into or slipped back into or allowed in with joy and refreshment and a skip in your step. You can repent because of the kindness of God. He leads us into repentance. And so I wanna invite us in this moment to experience some healing together before we close. There is a kind of healing that happens when we all gather together, when we allow someone to pray over us, or when we just make a physical even decision and acknowledge the areas of compromise that we have let in. And so I wanna invite you, even the awkwardness sometimes of like climbing over another person to like just indulge it or just to, to allow it to come forward if there are areas in your life you know that there's just, it's ripe with compromise. It's not aligned with, with a life of, do, of like loving mercy and doing justice and loving God, like Micah says. It's not aligned with the beauty and grace of Jesus.
Would you just come forward? Just come forward. And you can just kind of stand up front here and there's, you can kneel and our prayer team will begin to kind of come around and just pray for you or lay hands on you. Where have there been areas where like, maybe it's in your work. It's in your work. You're like, man, I, I know the ethics of the kingdom and I've been like just cutting corners, man. I've been cutting corners. I'm a little more concerned with climbing the ladder or maybe I'm a little more concerned with my like comfort. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not like giving anywhere. There's no place of generosity in my life. I'm not opening my home. I'm like, I know there's places where I just compromise. Maybe for you, there's places where you are just like filled with so much shame and guilt all the time. It's like, actually, you've allowed the voices in the world around you to say like, you are only the amount of friends you have on social media, or you are only like your social interactions, or like you're only the talent. And like, you need to hear God just say over you, you are loved, son. You are loved, daughter. I'm with right where you're at. And you need to like kick that shame. You've, you've literally compromised the vision of yourself for something that's based on only what you do or how you look or the ladder you're climbing, just come forward. Just come and like name this moment. Holy Spirit. Who am I? Who am I that the king of the world, the author of creation would welcome me into his family? Who am I? I be chosen, loved, seen. Who am I, Lord? Who am I? I thank you, God. I thank you, Lord, for the healing that you um, are going to do in this room right now. So come forward, continue to come forward as we sing. And just receive that blessing that blessing, receive that prayer, that resolve, that little pain in the bottom of your stomach that's like, yeah, I, I, I wanna trust. I wanna trust there's a better way. Or I've, let, I've been sitting with this sin and sitting with this compromise. I was just, I was looking at it for a hot second as I was walking by and then I started standing with it and now I'm like sitting with it. It is like habitual and it's just, it's just sitting there pulling me away. I feel defiled. I feel like I can't hear God. I feel disconnected because this thing just keeps pounding away. I just need to receive some prayer this morning. Just the, the gift of marking the moment. You don't need to share anything if you don't want. Just come and receive. We pray, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit.